brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio, Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I'm your host this afternoon, Steve Balistrieri. Joining us, I should say, joining us, we have a very special guest, Dan Schilling. He's an author. He spent 30 years in the military, mostly as an Air Force combat controller and a special tactics officer. But, you know, he started his, uh, his career, as many of us did, as an infantry grunt. So we're going to get into all that. But Dan, has, uh, he's been all around the world. He was in Somalia, which most of us know as Black Hawk Down. He, he worked with uh, Rangers. He worked with SEALs. He worked with SF guys. Um, you know, he worked with JSOC. Uh, he's written a bunch of books. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Power of Awareness, in just a few minutes. But first, we want to uh, welcome him to the podcast. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us this afternoon. I know we were cutting into some of your recreation time today, so we appreciate it. Uh, Steve, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, This is a great radio program. I'm really excited to be on, and uh, I think we're going to touch on some interesting stuff, interesting stuff. And, you know, skiing, I was supposed to be skiing this morning, but, uh, you know, I'd rather be doing this interview, and the snow's getting pretty crappy anyway. (laughs) Well, as I told you offline, we don't have much snow down here in Florida, so... uh, if you're going skiing, it's usually on the water down here, and you got to avoid the alligators on the river. So, yeah, I prefer the frozen water, frankly. Yeah, they, there you go. Uh, you know, uh, before we get into your uh, military career, I know that you know in your book you mentioned that it's also on your website. You hold the Guinness World Record for the most base jumps in 24 hours, 201. And I have to ask you about this because. You know, I know how many parachutes did you actually use on that day? I had twenty-four. I had twenty-four base rigs, and I had uh, I had fifteen packers who were all obviously base jumpers. And then some of the best base jumpers in the world. Actually, I was really fortunate to have a lot of great support from us. This it was really tight knit community, especially back then. And they still managed to almost kill me three times in the first <laughs> couple hours. <laughs> but we got past that, man. It worked out. So 201 base jumps in one day, you know, that as uh, uh, a parachutist and, you know, I love jumping. That's one thing I've never done. I have never base jumped and you talked about it in your book and that's one of your passions, isn't it? It is. And it's a, you know, as a, like you, I was a halo guy forever and I was a pro-rated demonstration skydiver you know i did a lot of skydiving on the weekends and that kind of stuff and uh but man base jumping is a different thing it has a different vibe to it there's no airplane there's no noise you have to usually climb or hike or you know clandestinely method of entry get into a building in las vegas not that i have jumped (laughs) off of hotels in las vegas or anything but you know it's got it's a whole different aspect of it and it's it's really for me Base jumping is a way to center myself because it forces all the thoughts out of your head because it's the only sport I've ever done or activity I've engaged in that you have to do everything exactly right 
at exactly the right time every single time or you die. Like there's no gray area. Like you become callous food or you're going to wall strike the Hilton in Las Vegas or whatever the case may be. And that's a really great way to, to, to push thoughts out and, and, mm-hmm. and worries out of your head. You know, I don't, I don't know why I base jump. I, it's a hard thing to describe except to say when I'm standing on top of a 600 foot cliff and then that instant when I push off of that rock and you are not accelerating at 32 feet per second per second yet, you're just in this momentary sense of suspension and the universe is just like not in motion and all the thoughts and worries are out of your head. And that instant, I know why I base jump. That's awesome. Uh, like I said, that's something I've never done before. And now during your 201 base jumps, did you have a helicopter to take you up or? You know? No, I had a, um, I had a 60 ton construction crane. It took me a year just to get the permit to, to close a lane on the interstate because it's the, it's the Perrine bridge over the snake river gorge in twin falls, Idaho. In fact, when you jump off the bridge, you can see the ramp that Evil Knievel built for his ill-fated rocket motorcycle car, whatever the hell it was, that he was trying to shoot across there. You can mm-hmm. see the dirt ramp uh, from there. So that's, yeah, that's where it is. And I, I just used a construction crane because I knew in order to break the world record, the current record at the time was 134 jumps. Um, I, it's about cyclic rate. And you can appreciate this as a, as a, as a you know, former Green Beret. It's a... Uh, it's all about logistics. And my plan was driven by logistics because I am a very average base jumper. I am not a spectacular aerobatic dude or anything, but I know how to run an operation, man. And that's really what it came down to. Well, you had to have some tired limbs by the end of that day. Yeah, I broke my arm about eight hours in, which sucked. But um, I had a PJ there, so he gave me a, a quick shot of Toradol and one, I think, my right <laughs> butt cheek. And that sort of fixed that problem and we just kept pressing on wow well let's talk about your military career because uh like a lot of us you started off as a grunt um how did you uh, come about that and tell us about you know getting into the air force and combat controlling well i was you know like a lot of guys with a lot of energy when i got out of high school i tried going to college and very unsuccessfully did that and so uh, I just wasn't ready. I didn't have the focus and the, maybe the maturity to do that. And uh, at the time, the girl I was dating uh, as a great favor to me reached into my chest, grabbed my heart and ripped it out, wrenching my life away from me. And I realized maybe I'll do something different. And oddly enough, somehow I encountered an, an army recruiter who told me, hey, we'll pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never occurred to me in my life to even jump out of an airplane. This is like 1985. And skydiving wasn't a big deal then. And, and I thought, man, jump out of an airplane. So I joined as a grunt and really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, you're humping a ruck at a 60 and, you know, you learn a lot about soldiering and, and how to work as a team. It's the basic fundamentals of even special ops. It's all about teamwork. And you can learn that at the infantry uh, level or environment. And I really found that appealing. And then I ended up going on a trip with some combat controllers about two years in, and they were doing blackout landings with Talon, you know, MC-130 Talons. Again, this is in mid-80s. And uh, and they were telling me they had their, their halo, they were scuba. And then Pete Neal, the guy who got me into combat control, he, he's dead now, but he said, yeah, and we get pro pay. 
And I said, propay, what is propay? And he goes, cool that's guy cool. It's exactly it. He's like, that's cool guy pay. I'm like, I'm in, man. I want cool guy pay. So I, but I'm in the army. So I'm only like two years into the army. I'm a corporal. And I go and talk to an Air Force recruiter. And he's like, hey, I can get you into the Air Force. And, you know, these guys were combat controllers. I'm like, I want to be a combat controller. At the time, you couldn't enlist for CCT. You just had to join the Air Force and take a gamble on it. But anyway, I got all the paperwork filled out. And he's like, if you can get a release, this will get you into the Air Force. So I went back to my my company commander, and I was a pretty fast-moving guy. I, you know, they, they liked me at the unit. And I'm like, hey, sir, I really want to be a combat controller. You know, here's the deal. And he's like, well, here's the deal, Schilling. If the Air Force will take you, if you can get into the Air Force, I'll sign your paperwork. I was like, funny you should say that, sir. And I flipped the thing across the desk. I'm like, this is the form right here. And he was boxed in. Good guy. He signed it. And I did an inter-service transfer. And, you know, and then that sent me on the trajectory to a lot of things that changed and shaped my life. Yeah. You know, having worked with combat controllers, uh, a couple of things always stood out. Those guys were as cool as a cucumber because you know you work with them and it's not always you know when people hear combat controller they're they're automatically thinking oh calling in airstrikes because of you know what's been going on for forever in afghanistan iraq but you know i remember working with those guys during a uh uh it was like a hurricane down in uh one of those central american haiti or honduras it might have been honduras back in that time and the first guys that showed up down there, the SF guys, we were already there. We had been working with the Honduran infantry, but then, you know, the country was destroyed. So who shows up? Combat controllers, because they're bringing in all of the, uh, you know, yeah. the emergency stuff. And they, they had a pretty interesting flight path. I mean, you know, as an SF guy, <laughs> you know, we don't know anything about that. And we're watching all these planes flying around and, this guy, you know, he's sitting there drinking his coffee, talking on the radio to a bunch of different pilots. You know, hat goes off to those guys. Well, it's a, you know, it's a funny thing because talking about, uh, you know, talking about that's one of the core missions, you know, combat control. Yeah, airstrikes is, is how in America's longest running war, we've earned a lot of stripes and we've always been the world's foremost capability for putting a bomb on a point on the earth at the right time without collateral damage. But as you said, you know, most people don't realize a couple things. One, we predate Green Berets and SEALs by about a decade. And two, we have this, the rest of this capability that really matters to the world is we're all rated air traffic controllers. We go to air traffic control school and you bring this capability to any dynamic. And so we're, we tend to be first on scene. You know, when Haiti collapsed in 2010, the first guys there in, in, in the world's response, the entire world was focusing on the collapse of Haiti there after the earthquake. The first guys that showed up was a handful of combat controllers with one ATV and a folding card table. And the guy who ran that, no officers at all, just enlisted dudes. It was a master sergeant named uh, Tony Travis. He's a friend of mine. And they ran that international airport and they exceeded the maximum capacity of the Haiti International Airport by 1400%. That's over the maximum capability of that airfield. And they did that for weeks without a single incident, running drop zones and the airfield. And it was amazing. And uh, for that feat, 
He was the first, um, you know, U.S. military member to be listed as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. And that's, that's one of the great things about combat control is you save the good guys in addition to killing the bad guys. Right. And, you know, it's funny because, uh, like I told you, I, I had spent some time with the guys and and they were uh, they were telling me, you know, we're we're unique in the fact that we train as a team, but we work as individuals, you know, working with you guys. Yeah. And the one thing that I, I realized right off the bat is, you know, when you're dealing with special ops guys and we all know that Green Beret, SEALs, Rangers, you know. Uh, there's a lot of type A personalities there, and, and I'm not going to tell you oh, yeah. we, were, we were a bunch of assholes, but we can be at times. And for those guys to come in and they're working with guys, you know, a lot of times they're working with guys they've never met before. Being able to fit right in seamlessly is is an art in itself. Well, you you learn to subordinate your ego. I mean, you touched on the key. You're working with a whole bunch of alpha people. Uh, men and women doesn't matter, you know, gender and 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 discipline, it it or, or what nationality. And so, in order to integrate into that type of environment rapidly and gain full trust of these people, that's like, hey, when things are going to be at their absolute worst, this is the one guy who's going to save everyone's life when no one else can do it. A, as you pointed out, there's a lot of pressure on the individual level, and B, you have to be able to to blend and all the best combat controllers I've known are very socially adaptable and malleable people. And, uh, and they tend to be really intellectually curious uh, folks. And, and that, and it's just, and, and you develop that and, and it carries you through life. I think one of the reasons I've been successful in some other areas in the, you know, whether it was my base jump world record or becoming a writer and even speaking to people, I can attribute to, all the things I learned, not just the core skills of special ops, shoot, move, communicate, jump from a plane, whatever. It was the people skills that I learned as a combat controller have really shaped me as an individual. And, uh, you know, and that's not all good. I guess I can be a jerk sometimes too, but who knows anyway. <laughs> well, we all can sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a funny story. I, 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 uh, when I was working with, you know, some controllers down in Paraguay, they were down the, down there for something completely different. Uh, I was down there working with the Paraguayan SF guys. Um, they went down to do some kind of a exercise with the Air Force. And, you know, we, we kept running into each other. And then, you know, we were jumping together with the Paraguayan guys. And so, uh, you know, we naturally started hanging out together and spending time. We were having, having a good time. And so... Uh, this one night, they, they had asked me, hey, you guys going to be around tonight? Yeah, yep, we'll be around. Well, it turns out our training went overtime. We were there late at, until late at night. We got back to the hotel, and they had sent one of the guys over that didn't speak Spanish. And he, he was like, where's the SF guys at? And the hotel, Major D, didn't speak English. So they, they're trying to pass a message, and... So when we get back, the maitre d' was like, yeah, the guy didn't speak Spanish. And I don't speak English, but he said something about 8 o'clock in the morning picking somebody up at the airport. So I was like, okay, they must have got a message that somebody's coming down. 
you know, you know how it works. And yeah, some yeah, senior, some yeah. some senior yeah. dudes coming to look at so, things or whatever. <laughs> so I have a pair of blue jeans on, a pair of cowboy boots, and a leather jacket, and I go to the airport because it, it's it's winter in Paraguay, which is like July, uh, and it was actually pretty chilly. So I go to the airport with uh, another guy from my team, and we're dressed kind of like the same. We figure we're going to pick up one of our guys. And uh, so then the Air Force guys were all there, CCT guys, and they had like almost an entire airborne battalion for the Paraguayans. And the the head controller came up to me. I'm trying to remember his name. Now I'm drawing a blank. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I got your message. Who are we picking up? He's like, no. He's like, we're jumping these battalion of guys. I need, you know, uh, jump masters. <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh, wow, no shit. So I said, uh, hey, uh, let me talk to because we were using U.S. Air Force pilots. And I said, let me talk to the pilot. So uh, the pilot was looking at me. He's like, hey, what's going on? And I said, hey, uh, this is Bill. This is a guy on my team. If it's all right with you, we're going to be the primary jump masters dressed like this. And he goes with cowboy boots on. And I said, hey, man, you know, I explained to him the situation. And he was like, as long as you can do it safely, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. So I was like, here we go. So I went to the CCT guys and I was like, any of you guys have a spare helmet? And they were like, yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. They had this gold motorcycle helmet that was like this god awful. It wasn't even gold. It was like <laughs> yellow metal flake, you know, and it was just absolutely horrible and i said you got to be kidding me right so um they were like no this is, we got this so i put this on i'm standing there in a leather jacket and i go through all the jump commands and all this and i'm looking at the front of the aircraft one of the cct guys got his movie camera out and he's phoning me he's like oh yeah <laughs> we we have blackmail material big time now you know and i was like oh my god but it i'm sure it was without, yeah. Go ahead. I was to say it's probably one of those uh, Bell 500, you know, <laughs> helmets that everybody had from way back in the day. Because that's just a yeah. We used to have a lot of those. We used to carry, you know, this is the cherry helmet thing. But we used to have a lot of those kind of things around just to yeah. screw with other people. Yeah, you well, know, that's in a good way, parted way. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but that was, uh, you know, uh, that was my story with that. And yeah, they they have that blackmail material on me. So anyway. So, um, yeah, get, getting back to the CCTs, uh, I wanted to ask you about Gothic Serpent, the operation in Mogadishu, and, you know, share some of your experiences there. Well, yeah, happy to. You know, one of the things that I tend to always land on uh, and emphasize with the public is you know, that was a very successful mission. It was just a very difficult and from our standpoint, costly and from a, mm -hmm. certainly from a Somali standpoint, even more costly operation that day. I mean, the, the deployment, the, the overall mission there was to you know, introduce more stability, stave off starvation as a weapon by the Habergetter clan and Somali National Alliance and roll up this warlord named Mohammed Farah Adid. And we were doing that. We were knocking out targets and we were doing things that people just didn't do back then. I mean, it was it was really the finest collection of joint special ops, I think, to date at that point. But what's really wonderful about the intent there was this was America at its best. This was America just helping other people 
who are being starved as a weapon by factional clan fighting. And that's anathema to the American culture. And we didn't have foreign interests there. It wasn't oil. It was just trying to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're difficult missions in a city of a million people. And on, on the day that most people know as Black Hawk Down, which was just really the seventh mission we had executed while we were there, man, we went into the middle of the city in the middle of the day with 200 guys. And I challenge any country in the world to put 200 men in that same situation and even have even one person walk out alive. And not only did we come out alive, we accomplished the mission. We just lost 18 great Americans, including a, uh, a good friend of yours. I understand you knew Earl Fillmore, who was a, a remarkable right. Delta Force operator. Yeah, Earl was he was one of those guys that you could be having the worst possible day and Earl would make you laugh and he'd get you smiling. He was just he had that kind of a personality. He was one of the funniest guys. I remember we were on the same team uh, in seventh group before. You know, he went to selection. We went to language school together. And he used to crack up our language school instructors every single day. You know, uh, I'll never forget that because we were in Spanish language training and he Earl was just hilarious. And, uh, yeah, he's he's missed, um, you know, uh, that, well, we lost a lot of good people that day. But, um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's always interesting to hear, you know, different people's perspective who were there. Um, you, you had a story about Jerry Boykin and two, uh, <laughs> well, so yeah, it has, has really nothing to do with the objective or even the, the events of October 3rd and 4th. But early on, we had this, uh, the, the, the Sergeant Majors, senior enlisted guys from all the units, TF-160 Delta. We had our unit, the 224th STS was there. So I was there with my guys and they were having this volleyball game between the commanders and the senior enlisted guys and so the the plan was the volleyball game and whoever lost had to serve up chow for the entire task force it was like 450 of us but the plan was before the game a whole bunch of us took down all the commanders and basically you know flexi tied them to either stokes litters or or regular <laughs> polis litters or you know regular standard you know wooden litters and so uh myself a couple other combat controllers and a couple of seals from seal team six we got jerry boykin who was the delta force commander at the time so we body slammed him to the asphalt which was a lot of fun in and of itself but when we were we were we were strapping him into a stokes later and he was putting up a pretty good fight but you know he knew it was inevitable until one of the seals broke out this dick marsenko rogue warrior tank top and it's like <laughs> Hey, sir, this is going on. And he's like, there's no way expletive, you guys are putting that thing on me. And we're like, fight if you want. So anyway, we, we, we got this over his head and got him on him. And then we had him flexi tied to the Stokes and we stood him upright. Like he was a gazelle. We'd just been out yeah. hunting and uh, like a trophy. And there's, you know, I got this picture of us holding him upright and he's like trying to hide his face, but you know, later on, uh, when he was, uh, I think he's the USASAC commander, um, I actually gave that to him as presento. He came out and spoke uh, at another organization I was in, and he was like, ah, oh, you son of a bitch. Like, no one's supposed <laughs> to ever seen those photos. <laughs> but it was just a funny photo, because here's the Delta Force commander wearing a, you know, a Dick Marsenko <laughs> Steel Team 6 t-shirt. That's awesome. 
Yeah, he's uh, he's quite the character himself. Yes, he is. Well, yeah. I could sit here and I, I could talk to you all day long about different stuff with the, you know, working with special ops. But I know that you you have a new book out, and uh, let's let's get into that. Uh, you know, um, this new book's called "The Power of Awareness," and basically, it, it's teaching people who maybe aren't trained in taking a, a, a hard look at their own lives, civilians type of thing. And it's written in that, in that way to basically keep safe in your everyday life. And yep. tell our listeners a little bit about the book and then we'll, well, we'll you've touched on the key for me. Uh, this book came to me through my agent. He's like, I think you should write this book. And I said, no, I'm not interested in writing that book. I don't think, and there's a lot, there's a lot of books that have been out there on that. Um, and then I was down in Mexico getting ready to race in the Baja 1000 and our race truck and race car and all our kit got stolen by Mexican car thieves while we watched from 600 meters away. And I was like, man, if I had a 300 wind mag, I could solve this problem right now. <laughs> but, but A, I didn't. And B, I realized I can't believe I let this happen. And so I came back and told my agent, I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm going to write this book. And when I did research on, you know, what other books are out there like this, there's some really good ones. There's some, most of them are, are mediocre or bad. They're either very self-promotional or they're too technical or they're trying to, you know, demonstrate their expertise and it's a lot of ego. And I wanted to write a book that the typical citizen of the world would find useful. So the book's easy to understand. The rules, there are six core rules. They're easy to remember and implement in your life. And I structured it that way because that's what's going to have value to the, the typical person walking the planet. Most people don't have the training you and I have, and they don't think that way, and they don't have, know how to prioritize and contingency plan. And so I deliberately wrote away from military acronyms and, and, and I pulled from a lot of people that I've had the good fortune to work with, CIA case officers I've known, other special operators, police detectives in particular are very valuable resources because they're always dealing with the aftermath of a crime. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to pull the best tactics from the best people in the world and then instill that into the book. And hopefully that's what I've done. And, and really my goal is that someday I get an email from someone who says, Hey, this book saved my life. Like that's my objective. And I, I, and I'm very enthusiastic about that because I think people can really learn from situational awareness and intuition. And that's the foundation of, of all personal safety. Right. And you know, reading your book, um, there's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of it's common sense stuff that a lot of people just don't, they, they, they don't they have don't it know. in their mindset. Right. Right. They just and, don't know. Not their and, fault. You know, for, for a very short amount of time after I got out, I, I used to travel with a very uh, wealthy family from California when they'd travel around the world. And, you know, one day some of their friends said, well, how are you going to, you know, keep these people safe in a bad situation? And I, I used to tell them, they hire me to keep them out of the situation getting right. Bad. That's what my job is. It's not to be like some super Steven Seagal, you know, uh, you know, Kung Fu master gunfighter. It's to keep this from ever happening. And that's, that's why they hired me. 
And that when I read this book, that's what came through, I thought, loud and clear with this. It's all about preventing it from happening in the first place. Yeah, it's it's you know, my book is not about Krav Maga or concealed carry. And those are things I touch on, but right. that's not, you know, the best battles are over before the shot is fired by one side at the other. And it's Sun Tzu, I guess, too. But I, I tend not to fall into that philosophical, uh, you know, martial philosophical path because it's really about – it's about people understanding and honing situational awareness and listening to their intuition. Intuition is inherent. You've got it. I've got it. Everyone listening has it. But in the modern world, it has never been a safer time to be a human. You're less likely to be enslaved now or raped now or have all your possessions stolen or be subject to a war now than at any time in human history. That's not to say the world's not full of criminals and, and conflict. But the fact is, you don't have to pay attention to your intuition anymore. And for that reason, people subordinate it. And that's not healthy for you. Because the one thing I learned that really surprised me in the course of writing the book in my research, when I was spending a lot of time with LAPD, um, that some detectives down there, was that people always knew what not to do. And yet, mm -hmm. they still walked across that black tarp parking lot at night or open the apartment complex gate when they knew not to. And they do that because they believe it's more important to be socially polite or they don't want to look foolish. And, and that's, that's wrong. And so in my book, one of the things I think I've done that's innovative from a, from a personal safety book standpoint is there are exercises in the book to help people understand what situational awareness is and how to break it down simply and easily and, and how to, to get back in touch with their intuition. And I feel so strongly about that, that I incorporated them into the book at the end of, the, of these six rules that comprise the core of the book. But I've also provided them for free on my website because people who read the book I want them six months later, two friends are having a beer or, or, or two girlfriends are having a cocktail and they talk about it. It's like, I can't remember what he was talking about when you're dining or how to do surveillance detection and mm -hmm. these things that really can save your life. I want them to be able to look at their phone, pull it up, go to my website and say, oh, yeah, danchillingbooks.com. Here's what he was talking about, because the only way they'll get better. And you know this, Steve, is practice, 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 practice. And so. If I could make it accessible for people, I, I'm hoping they'll come back and incorporate it into their lives. And that's the goal of this book. Now, that wasn't an easy thing to do with my publisher, but but they're on board with it, too. You know, they know what I'm trying to do here. Right. And, you know, in your book, having read it, when you talk about being situationally aware, there's um, it's actually a two part thing uh, that you write about. And can you explain that a little bit? I don't want to give too much of your book away because we're encouraging our listeners to go out and buy it. But at the same time, I think that it's it's very interesting stuff here. Well, there's uh, hold on. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna go to mute for a second because the garbage truck's gonna drive by here in about oh, ten okay. seconds. That's okay. <laughs> so yeah, okay, yeah, you're gonna we'll have to we'll, we'll come back and kickstart that again. But uh, give him just a second because he's driving mm -hmm. right by the front of the house. Um. Yes, that, it's a good thing to talk about here. Let me just let him cruise on by. So, 
so Steve, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, situational awareness for me is different than I think how most experts or, or, uh, espousers of situational awareness view it because most people think of it as a singular term, situational awareness, almost as if it's one word. And I don't see it that way. And, and I want the, the, the civilian reader or the, the, the business traveler or the holiday vacation taker to, to understand that it's really two components. There's the situation, which is external to you. Who's in your environment? What are they doing? Are they interested in you for good or bad? Are, you know, are, are things happening and what's your place in that environment? So that's external to who you are. Then there's the internal aspect, which is what should my appropriate level of awareness be? You know, you're in your studio. I'm in my office. Like I'm, com I'm completely unaware of everything that's going on around me if I choose to be because I'm not likely to be under threat as opposed to, say, just being open to an environment that I think might be safe, like walking my, my local town where I'm just open to input as opposed to walking through a strange city where I'm not under threat, but I need to be attentive. And those things are internal to me and I can control that. And that's what people need to get in touch with. And those are the exercises that I put in the book to help people hone that so that it becomes second nature that you think about those things and not in a paranoid, everything's a threat kind of way. Cause I'm not a serious guy. I mean, I don't take many things very seriously. Or I'm certainly not somber about this. I just want people to to think about it in a positive way and then begin to incorporate it. And I think that's an easier way for the non-military or security professional to think about it. Right. And, you know, uh, in your book and as well as on your website, you have six basic rules. And again, it's, it's just, it sounds like it's very simple, but it, it's imperative for people who want to be safe and who don't think about this on a daily basis like professionals do. And, and that's how and, they get in trouble because <clears throat> there's a perception in modern society when people are confronted with a criminal act, and this is anecdotal, it's not scientific, but that, hey, this shouldn't be happening because it shouldn't be happening. You should be able to wander around and you want to be able to wander around. But that's different than, than what can happen. And so you need to be just attuned so that as you were talking about when you were doing this for a living on as a private you know contractor people don't get in that situation don't put yourself at risk and that's the core of my book travel the world it, the world is a wondrous place uh, it meant to be explored and enjoyed with the people you love but to do that safely you need to be more aware and that's the purpose of the book. And, and it builds on it from there. We don't have to delve into it because it's better read on the page. And I hope people buy copies of the book. If you go to danschillingbooks.com, you can get signed copies from my local indie bookseller, but you can get it anywhere, Barnes and Noble, even Amazon, it doesn't matter. I'm a big supporter of indie bookstores though, because I think literature is very important and these people have a great passion for it. And it's a hard business to be in if you're not Amazon. And uh, and Amazon's convenient and it's it does a lot of great things for people. But, uh, you know, when it comes to reading, man, you you learn more on a page than you will by listening to a podcast or watching something on TV. It's it's interesting. I, I've come to feel because I read and I write every day 
that, you know, I've watched some very powerful movies that have impacted me emotionally and, 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 and left impressions, but I've never had one of those save my life. And I've had a book save my life. And I've had other books change my life. And that's the power of the written word. And that's why I think it's really important that, that people, you know, pick up a copy of the book because I, I think it can save lives and it can keep them safe is a better way to put it maybe. I think that's a great, great way to put it. And also, I, I encourage all of our uh, listeners out there and our readers from Safra uh, to check out Dan's uh, website, because for those of you who, who might not be as, as well-trained as others, he has exercises that you can download about situational awareness, intuition, like he just mentioned, as well as checklists when you, know, you travel in a hotel or traveling in general. Uh, that are absolutely really, really good stuff to know because it's all about keeping you safe and enjoying yourself safely. And I used to tell people all the time, don't put yourself out there like a victim. Don't be staring at your phone when you're walking down the street late at night because that's the kind of people that put a, a target on themselves. And, and that is the vast majority of people on any given day. You know, we're all... We're all guilty. I'll go out on a limb and say, I'll bet, Steve, you have texted while driving because guilty. I do, too. <laughs> right. There is not a there's not a smartphone owning human in the world who isn't guilty of that, who also owns a car. But the point is not to give up your phone, but just as you shouldn't do it in heavy traffic or at all, I guess. But when you are in a strange city and you're in the wrong time zone, your circadian rhythm is off. Everything else is is out of whack people can identify you as not from around here for whatever reason never look at your phone you know unless you're parked in someplace safe a hotel lobby or there's a couple of you and you're trying to figure out where to go next you don't walk and stare at your phone doing the google maps thing because that just says i would like to be your next victim if you're a criminal and that's the important question when should i look at my phone and when should I not? But those are subsets. You know, the, the, the more important thing is that's a poor decision based on you're not actually practicing situational awareness because you're being unaware. You're blinding one, if not two, of your most important senses, sight and, and hearing. That's uh, great stuff there. And tell our listeners, I know you mentioned it a, a minute ago, uh, you know, uh, danschillingbooks.com. Uh, is there anywhere else they can find this? Uh, the book, I mean, you, you know, it's it's out in bookstores on uh, June 2nd. Um, you can pick up copies anywhere. And uh, I'll oh, tell June you. June 2nd. I thought it was yeah. June 1st. Okay. No, it comes out uh, next Tuesday. Um, okay. So uh, for for folks, the book is the best resource. Uh, it's, it is the way I hope to reach people. I'm, I'm doing some videos. I've actually founded a uh, Power of Awareness Institute. We're in the early stages of developing curriculum. Mm -hmm. We're hoping to help corporations and individuals. It's not really for the military professional or law enforcement community, although I, there's value there too. It's to provide these for folks. So that will be up and running. And it's uh, get my mypoa.org is the website, but it's not up uh, yet, but we are in the stages of doing that. But it's the book. It, even the institute that we're founding mm -hmm. is surrounded, it surrounds the principles that are contained in the book. And I think books are such a valuable 
means for people to learn. And they're handy references. It's, a, it's not a thick book. There's interesting science in there, but I don't bog down on a lot of science like the amygdala and all this stuff that what is the actual lizard brain? For guys like you and me, Steve, like we're not going to remember that stuff. Come on, look at me. I'm not, you know, I can't remember. I'm not a scientist. But I do know that I can make that important for people to understand that, hey, you act this way under one set of circumstances and that way under another set of circumstances. And those are the things that are in the book in an easy to way, way, way to understand. And, and there's some really entertaining stories in there as well uh, as some cautionary tales. But uh, hopefully it's an entertaining read as well. You know, as an author, my job is to educate, but also entertain. I want people to enjoy the read. And I think it's a I think it's a lively book. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, you know, uh, you mentioned one of your anecdotes in there. Even trained professionals sometimes make mistakes as what happened to you in Mexico. Um, and it was during a base jump, right? Uh, you and your partner were getting ready to do a base jump and you made a mistake and your, your stuff got stolen. Yep. Yeah, we were actually speed flying. Now, so we weren't base jumping. Speed but yeah, we, we, made, we made a series like any plane crash or crime act it's a convergence of things that all arrive at a single point in time that allows a bad thing to happen and uh you know you gotta if you can break one item in that chain you'll stop you'll stop the the accident or the attack and you know it's really about that but uh yeah so you know it's hopefully it's a good read you know there's there's some funny stories in there about a lot of other things including intuition you know how you can use that um i've and intuition has saved my life on a couple of occasions. But the one of the things I emphasize in the book about intuition and the avoidance of crime is that you never really know how close you came because if nothing happened, you're doing everything right. Exactly. So you can't really prove a negative, but that's the trick. And you have to be aware that if nothing's happening, you're doing things right. And that's why, for many reasons, it's easier for a non-professional to listen to their intuition than it is a group of professionals who are very focused on an objective to listen to intuition. Because intuition can be disruptive to what you've planned to do. But the thing about intuition, and I rarely speak in absolutes, but that is absolutely true about it is two things. One, if you're reacting to something that means there's something existential there. You may not consciously know what it is. You may just get a bad feeling and you can't put your finger on it. But you can guarantee you're responding to something existential. And number two is it is in your best interest to listen to that voice. And that's why I put exercises about intuition in the book to help people get back in touch with that and to start listening to that little tiny voice. And every time every one of us, even professionals, make mistakes is when we ignore that intuition. Over it's, and over again. <laughs> that's it. Dan, uh, hey, I could sit here and talk to you all day long. I know you're a busy man. I want to thank you for joining us today on Soft Rep Radio. We really appreciate your time. And uh, we encourage all of our readers to to buy Dan's book. The Power of Awareness, it comes out, I was going to say June 1st again, June 2nd. But uh, it, especially for those who aren't, uh, you know, trained military type personnel, for the civilians out there, this is a really good book, especially if you do a lot of traveling. But it, it'll help you in the everyday life. You know, when you go downtown, we all know there's bad folks out there. So um, 
this will keep you safe and it may just save your life. So, Dan, thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Steve, it's been my pleasure. And for folks uh, that are listening, I'll be in Fort Walton Beach on Herbert Field on June 4th. But for anyone from the soft community, I'll be at Fort Bragg. Uh, June 5th, I'll be in Southern Pines at the Country Bookshop uh, at 9 a.m. If you just Google the Country Bookshop there in Southern Pines, uh, I'd love to meet you. I'm doing an hour-long uh, presentation. We're going to talk about personal safety. But the final thing I'd leave you with, Steve, and all your listeners is, you know, the skills that are in this are not just about defensive actions and, and avoidance of crime. Situational awareness and intuition, they're very positive things. They're how you make great business strategy, how you can forge business relationships, how you can even find love. So I think it's, it's a lot more valuable than just that. And I hope people get a positive takeaway from the book. But uh, keep up the great work. You guys are doing a fantastic job with your show. And I, I appreciate you having me on. Anytime. And uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future. Happy to do it. Just hit me up. All right. Uh, for all of us here at Soft Rep Radio, we want to thank you all for listening. Thanks to our guest, Dan Schilling. We'll be back with another podcast real soon. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.